Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communication Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about irrigation. We have four members of Extension's Nutrient Management team. Can you each give us a quick introduction? Hi, I am Fabian Fernandez, a Nutrient Management Specialist in, located in the St. Paul campus, uh, working in nitrogen management specifically. Hi, uh, this is Vasu Sharma. Uh, I'm the Irrigation Specialist uh, in the Soil, Water and Climate Department, uh, also located in the St. Paul campus. Hi, I'm Taylor Becker. I'm an Extension Educator based out of the St. Cloud Regional Office, and I focus on agricultural water quality. Hi, I'm Annie Nelson. I'm also an Extension Educator out of our St. Cloud Regional Office, and I focus on groundwater and drinking water. All right, so starting off, can you tell us a little bit about what deficit irrigation is and if there could be an important role for it this year if it stays dry? Yeah, so, so deficit irrigation, it is an irrigation strategy uh, that applies uh, water uh, less than what is required by the crop to meet its crop water demands or evapotranspiration demands to maximize the profit. So basically in the regions uh, where water resources are, uh, are restrictive or are limited, it can be more profitable for the grower uh, to maximize the crop water productivity, which is uh, the yield per unit of water used instead of maximizing uh, the yield per unit land. Uh, so when we talk about uh, deficit irrigation, uh, there are basically two ways that you can do it in general. Uh, one strategy is uh, when we withhold water uh, at growth stages, uh, different growth stages uh, that are less sensitive to water deficit as compared to others. Uh, in this in this strategy, so you know the crop is using is 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 less sensitive to water stress at the beginning and the end of the growing season. So we can withhold water at those stages and maybe in the in the in the stages uh, that is transition zone from vegetative to reproductive uh, growth periods when crop is most sensitive to water stress, we apply the full water. So that's one strategy. The other strategy is uh, in which we uh, uh, we irrigate enough to satisfy a percentage of of crops uh, water demands or ET rate. So in this strategy, what we do is uh, we apply fixed amount uh, throughout the growing season, uh, independent of what growth stage uh, it is on. Uh, so the advantage with this fixed amount or the percentage reduction strategy is that it does not require you uh, to withhold water uh, at specific growth stages. For example, in, in years with uh, where, where, where precipitation is uncertain. So there could be that dry spell like, like we have right now. So if you are not putting any water in that time, the, your crop, you know, could be very dry. So, so this percentage reduction strategy or the fixed amount strategy will will ensure that in, in a very dry spell, the crop is still getting some water. So, depending on you know year to year and and region to region, this strategy could be changed based on the temporal and the spatial variability that exists in the soils, that exists in the groundwater levels and the climatic conditions. Uh, and then talking particularly about, about Minnesota, mostly, you know, question being asked is deficit irrigation is something that Minnesota growers uh, can benefit from. Uh, so my answer would be yes. So as you see, you know, given the pressures on, on irrigated agriculture from, from water shortages standpoint or from environmental issues, I think it's most likely that deficit irrigation is going to be the future. Uh, you, as you as you compare it with you know the western states uh, where water is a limited resource we we know that minnesota is in a very good condition uh, as compared to other western states but with the climate change as i said you see these dry 
this dry season this year, uh, water could be something that is going to be a limited resource, particularly for irrigation in, in the coming future, maybe. So in such times, deficit irrigation, I think, is a way to go so that we can, you know, irrigate all the crops that need irrigation uh, with the limited resource that we will be having. And, and Vasu, you, you brought an interesting point there, and I was going to actually ask you because you know more about this than any of us, but, uh, um, you know, you did your, your work in Nebraska, and the deficit irrigation concept is kind of new in Minnesota, I believe, but it is not in the Western states, right? I mean, it's, this is something that yeah. uh, in Western states where it's a lot drier, they have been kind of doing for, for quite a while, correct? Yes, that's right. So in Western states, deficit irrigation is something that growers are using and a lot of research has been done particularly because water is limited and there are more restrictions on on water usage so policy is something that is driving in those states uh, as well here in Minnesota we don't have such policies yet uh, but I think it's a good time that we start looking at at these strategies in advance before you know <laughs> before the time comes when we don't have any research and we have to maybe implement it so uh, you are right. Western states are have more research on this topic and it's newer here in Minnesota. So that's what we are looking at, that how it works here in Minnesota climate and Minnesota soils. I do have a question on that actually for you as well, Vasu. Um, when you're looking at deficit irrigation and that, and that sort of thing, are you also going to be looking at some of the economics? So with that water savings, is there any, any kind of economic benefit for a farmer? Yes. So I also wanted to talk about uh, about the research that we are doing here, uh, where we are looking at uh, different uh, levels of irrigation, so deficit irrigation levels with uh, different nitrogen rates and looking at how they interact with each other and how uh, it impacts uh, the environment. And also, is it economically profitable to use some kind of uh, management. So that's the research that's going on in two locations here in Minnesota. And Fabian is uh, one of the investigators in that uh, project where we are uh, looking at the interaction uh, of, of these two variables, irrigation and nitrogen, and then their impact on, on uh, various factors, including crop yield, how much water we are going to save using deficit irrigation, and how much uh, particularly uh, looking at the environment, how much it's helping in reducing the leaching. Uh, so right now we have uh, two years uh, so far, uh, two years of data that we have uh, from this research, uh, and it looks like the deficit irrigation works well here in Minnesota, particularly in wet or average rainfall years that we had in last couple of years, and is also a viable option for reducing nitrate leaching, particularly in central uh, sands region where we have our research sites. What should growers know about variable rate irrigation? So you know the crop. If you if you go out in the field, it may appear uh, same from the surface, but there could be a lot of variability below the surface. So it could be due to soil texture. It could be due to depth of groundwater. So there are so much variability that exists in a single field, and these differences that exist in the single field they can result in uh, different water holding capacities and amounts of water and nutrients that are available to the crop, and these all all variabilities, they contribute to the spatial variability in crop growth. So, so variable rate irrigation or, or variable rate uh, technology is, is, is in, in this technology, uh, we apply water uh, 
in, in right amount at right location. So different areas of the field get different amounts based on the variability rather than one uniform rate across the entire field. So it's a precision egg technology that helps to spatially optimize uh, the use of water. So, so growers, uh, so basically what you need to look is how much variability exists uh, in the field. So growers who are considering uh, whether to invest in BRI technology or not, they should be very careful uh, about uh, the potential costs and benefits to see if it fits good uh, in, in their uh, farm or not. So based on the variability in the field and what are the growers' goals, uh, that decision should be made. Yeah, and you know, one additional thing that I've noticed uh, with some of the research that we are doing with cover crops and uh, and living mulches and irrigation uh, that kind of adds to what Vasu was talking about in terms of the variability is that um, on one hand, you can uh, have more water consumption and others less water consumption depending on the, on that additional variable of cover crops. I know that uh, a lot of farmers are looking into these um, systems. And so uh, in a particular study that I am thinking about, we have both uh, cover crops that are terminated in the spring and we have some that are living mulches. So they are um, intercropped with uh, a growing corn or soybean crop. And this year in particular has been uh, really telling uh, the difference that you can have due to these cover crops present in the ground. Um, we have in determinated crops, we actually have residue that is from the cover crop that was terminated and that keeps, you know, the soil uh, kind of gives it a, a mulching effect, if you will. It protects uh, the, the soil from a lot of evaporation. The, the residue is all dead now and covering the, the soil surface. So that, that helps reduce some of the evaporation that you would have early in the season, especially where the crops are just starting to grow and they're not covering the entire soil surface yet. Later in the season, um, the residue, of course, will decompose, so there won't be as much residue, but by then the crop will be covering the soil surface, so it will not be much of an evaporation situation there. But then in the living mulch is where I really have seen a lot of differences, where we have corn and soybean crops growing, but the cura clover that we have as a living mulch there is also competing for water because it's a living uh, plant and it's needing water. And so if you have situations like that, you need to really be cognizant of that as you apply water because it's obvious that that crop will, will require water and will use water. And it will be, if you don't have adequate water, uh, it will be competing for, for that resource with the cash crop. Yeah, I think Fabian brought a very good point about the cropping system. So thinking outside the box of soil variability for variable rate irrigation, uh, I think the other things where other places where the VRI would be useful is when you are uh, having different crops. So if there's a single irrigation system and multiple crops under that system, you just cannot apply the same amount of water at the same time to all crops. So that could be where something BRI would be very useful. The others are if you have, you know, very low depressions, like lower spots in the field that doesn't need any irrigation and water table is really very high. So those are the spots that you can leave and variable irrigation could be very beneficial. Others are if the stream is going from, from your field, you don't need to irrigate that. So there are some, some other things other than soil variability uh, that could be considered when, when looking at the VRI.
What's the best approach to nitrogen fertilization in irrigated corn and what should farmers keep in mind when applying N in irrigated fields? This is a, a really important question because, um, you know, when, uh, when we look at the, the research that we are conducting across Minnesota, we find that split applications don't always work the greatest in fine texture soils uh, or they work just as well as a full pre-plant application. But when we are talking about irrigated soils, which are most of them are kind of coarse texture soils that don't retain a lot of water and they have a very high potential for uh, nitrate leaching, that's where split applications are very, very important. Now, one of the things that we've noticed in these uh, irrigated sandy soils is that um, doing a pre-plant application has very little benefit. Um, it, most often, I mean, this is an uh, exceptional year where the potential for loss has been really low, even in, in sandy soils. But for the most part, I mean, you look at the last 10 years and what is the probability that you will have a lot of rain in, you know, May, June, and it's pretty substantial. And so we've seen consistently that those pre-plant applications are just not a very good idea because most of that nitrogen will get lost. It will leach below the root zone. And so what we've uh, been doing now is rather than applying any nitrogen at pre-plant, the first application that I've been doing is around B2. And, and this, this kind of gives a good compromise because the plant at that point needs very, very little nitrogen, but it will start needing some nitrogen. So you don't wanna be without nitrogen in those situations. You do want to apply some nitrogen, but you know, I normally do like a three or four way split application with just a small amount of nitrogen, 30, 40 pounds around V2, just to get the plant uh, some nitrogen for the next stage. And, and that seems to work well for two reasons. One is that you supply the nitrogen the crop needs, but then the, the other part is that you limit the amount of nitrogen that is there potentially with potential for loss if there is a lot of rain. Um, and, and the other part is that by doing that, then the next application comes around say V6, V7, um, kind of around this time of the year. And at that point, the potential for nitrogen loss diminishes substantially for two reasons. One is that um, typically precipitation is not as uh, excessive at that time in the year. The soils are a little bit drier, so they have a little bit more capacity to store water. And obviously sandy soils don't have a huge capacity to store water, but that capacity is there. And then the other part is the crop will be using the nitrogen you apply is going to be using it very quickly and it's also using water. So if there is rain and there is substantial rain, the potential is lower for loss just simply because the plants will be taking up both nitrogen and water out of the system. And so with, that's, that's kind of what, what I'm doing in terms of um, recommending fertilizer applications in sandy soils with irrigation is, especially if you have fertigation, you have the, the potential to, to apply it through the system is to split apply at least two or three times uh, 
that nitrogen application. The, the other thing that it's, is sometimes problematic in areas where you don't have irrigation is that if you wait for a side race application, and this will be a perfect year this year, I'm, I'm debating, I have several studies that are right now at like around V6, that's where we plan to do the side race application. We tried to do as much as we could yesterday and today because this is the one chance of we have for some rain to get that nitrogen into the soil. Um, maybe next Friday, in a week from today, there may be another chance for rain, but it's not a lot of rain and not a very good chance. And so if you're in those situations, it's pretty tough to apply nitrogen aside race because it will just sit there on the surface. Uh, if it's urea, you can have a high potential for volatilization loss. Well, all of those concerns, if you have irrigation, are not concerns because you can apply fertilizer at any time and then irrigate um, to incorporate that nitrogen application into the soil. So there is a lot of latitude when you have irrigation. And so there is where I suggest uh, doing the split applications makes a lot of sense in this irrigated uh, sandy soil. So uh, plan for two or three applications. That's what I've been recommending to farmers. Something you touched on that I thought was really important was kind of the timing of those nitrogen applications. So you know, especially in the early spring when maybe not this year, but maybe another year, you might have a lot more precipitation than you have crop uptake of water. And that's where you can really have those high risk situations of leaching. And you don't really want to apply that nitrogen before that, that high risk time period, because you're kind of wasting your money. You know, if it's leaching below the root zone, it's not going to be taken up by the crop and it's not going to be contributing to yield. So that was just a point you made. I just, I wanted to reiterate. I thought that was really important. Yeah, and you know, one thing that I didn't mention, but that I think is is good mentioning is that when you look at the nitrogen uptake of corn of a corn crop, you're looking at a very small amount to about this time in the year, around V6. You know, the plants have accumulated about 10% of the total nitrogen that they will take up. So it's very small. And so applying a large amount of nitrogen early in the season is not necessary. I mean, again, if you have little chance for nitrogen loss, that's not a problem. You can apply it uh, early, that's fine. But from the crop standpoint, um, it, there is really a very small amount of need for nitrogen. The only situation where I would be most concerned about making sure that there is some nitrogen apply around V2 early in the season is in continuous corn systems where immobilization of nitrogen is a concern. In those situations, I may go and apply a slightly higher amount of nitrogen, you know, maybe 40, 60 pounds uh, is, is kind of a better uh, amount of nitrogen, maybe into the 60 to 80, if, if you're really concerned about it. And, you know, in a corn soybean rotation, I think 40 pounds of nitrogen at around B2 is all you need to, to get the crop to, to have what it needs until about B6 when you will do the second application. So, so, so V2 and V6 are the two important uh, growth stages for corn for like if, if, if grower doesn't have resources for splitting it into four applications. So what would be your recommendation in terms of growth stage uh, that would be like beneficial for, for maximum uptake of nitrogen? 
I'm glad that you asked that question. Um, you, so the V2 application is, is a little bit more in terms of logistics related to rain and the potential for nitrogen loss. I mean, we do have a potential for nitrogen loss early in the spring, you know, at the V2 stage still, but it's, it's minimum or, or it's lower than a pre-plant application, let's, let's put it that way. But we are applying only a small amount of nitrogen too, so that if there is a lot of rain, we still don't lose the whole investment. Um, when you look at nitrogen uptake, the corn crop starts to take up a lot of nitrogen around V8 and it continues until tassel. Uh, R1. And so what you want to do is to have the majority of nitrogen apply by, by the time the crop needs it. So if you have irrigation and you're able to do that with fertigation, that's, you know, I recommend that you do all of your nitrogen application by around B12, definitely by before tassel. Some people think that just because they can apply nitrogen through the whole season, that they should do that. But uh, you definitely want to have all of your nitrogen apply by by before tassel. So I normally try to target the last application around B12. And so if you don't have that capability of doing fertigation and you are kind of limited because there is cost associated with um, trips across the field, I would say, you know, first application around B2 and the second application around the V6 to V8 stage, and you can do that, the, the rest of the application at that point, apply the, the rest of the total nitrogen. If you have the, the capability of, of doing more than that, that's, that's fine, but again, do it before tassel. And what about uh, nitrogen source? What are your recommendations for that, especially with the high nitrogen prices right now? Yes, yeah, so, um, any, any nitrogen source is, is a good source um, for, for split applications, except um, things that uh, delay the, um, the availability. So, you know, a polymer coated urea like ESN, it would not be something that I would apply at site rest time because what you want at that point is available nitrogen. And so anything anhydrous ammonia, urea, UAN, all of those will be rarely available for for uptake by the crop. And so it's it's kind of a decision of the price, obviously, typically anhydrous ammonia is the cheapest source, but uh, it may not lend itself as well or as easy to apply as maybe urea as a broadcast application. And so that decision is more related to, well, the economics and the equipment that you may have available uh, to do the application. I just wanted to touch on this a little bit, you know, when we mentioned that nitrogen prices are so high. So our colleague, Brad Carlson, wrote a really great blog post a few months ago about nitrogen prices and whether you should change your rates or think, think about that from this season. And when we look at it, really, yes, nitrogen prices have gone up, but so has the price of corn. And so when we look at our MRTN, our maximum return to nitrogen, we think about that from the university, we're still at this 0.1 ratio right now, where say, you know, urea is about 50 cents per pound and corn is about $5.50 to, to almost $7 right now. And so we're still really close to that 0.1 ratio and where, where our recommendations would still work at this point. So even thinking about your sources, I probably wouldn't limit yourself at this point in the season because you still should be able to get that price proportional that you need to pay for that. 
Yeah, when it comes to um, deciding on the source of nitrogen, I think the main thing for split applications when the crop is growing is the potential for damage to that crop. Um, so how, which source of nitrogen you use and how you apply it, it has to do more with, with the crop than anything else. Uh, but again, here with irrigated systems, that takes care of a lot of the concerns that um, dry land farmers have. Uh, you know, if it, typically with dry land, the longer you wait, the worse it is for damage to the crop. You know, if you have a world already developing in the corn crop and you're broadcasting urea, you can end up in, in, you create these, you know, the crop creates a funnel and where a lot of that urea can end up and that creates damage to the, to the foliage. Uh, or a UAN application done as a broadcast is kind of the worst case scenario because it, it can burn the, the crop really bad. But with irrigation, it, that takes care of a lot of those issues because you can apply water to wash off the fertilizer if you are doing a broadcast application and also getting it into the soil, which again, that's, that's a big concern for uh, dry land farmers if they are using, for instance, urea and it's just sitting there on the surface without any way to incorporate it, it can volatilize you the atmosphere. With irrigation, you just simply apply, you know, a quarter inch of water um, to a half inch of water. That's more than enough to get the fertilizer into the root zone and uh, protect it from volatilization. Is there an advantage to using fertigation over traditional fertilizer applications? And what can you say about variable rate fertigation? Sure. So Fabian touched on this just a little bit, um, but, you know, using fertigation, you're able to really just limit those passes across the field. And that's a lot of time and energy you can save um, by using something that's already there. And so really, you know, that can help with compaction or time issues. You're spending less on gas, all these, all these great things that can help with that. And then of course the damage to the plants like Fabian suggested. And so, but is there a benefit to the plant either way? Nitrogen is gonna act the same whether in the soil and in the plant, whether you apply it from a granular fertilizer or through a pass through the field or through fertigation. So is there a benefit to your plant either way? Not so much. It's maybe just when you can get it to the plant um, using fertigation, maybe that's a little easier. So it just really depends on the timing and when you can get it out there, but it doesn't really, the nitrogen acts, is gonna act the same way. So um, also for variable rate fertigation. And so there are systems out there that companies sell now where you can do variable rate fertigation. And so that would be pumping your nitrogen out, you know, through the nozzles. And so it is a, fairly new. And so we don't have any information on it or any research on it for Minnesota right now, but I think Vasu is gonna to touch on um, what research he was interested in and what we could possibly do here in the future. Yep, so as, as Eddie mentioned, we do have hardware to, to do this kind of stuff to apply nitrogen variably throughout the field, but our main uh, 
I would say the problem or the, the things that we don't know is how to create that prescription map. How, how would we know that what spot needs what amount of nitrogen throughout the season? So creating those prescription map is something that uh, we would be researching on uh, in the near future. And we have started doing some basic research on that through our uh, irrigation and nitrogen study that I talked about earlier. Uh, so what we are doing is we are using some multispectral and th thermal imaging data using drones to to, uh, correlate our nitrogen and water uh, with, with these uh, images to, to, to build these relationships that we can use uh, throughout the growing season to understand uh, based on these images, based on the remote sensing data, how much uh, my crop gonna need in terms of nitrogen and water so that I can use uh, this, these relationships in future to apply variably both water and nitrogen. So that's something that we are focusing on right now at the UFM. What should farmers know about irrigation and nitrogen fertilization as it relates to nitrate leaching and groundwater contamination? Sure. So, you know, nitrogen loss really is ultimately driven by water. Um, that's, that's pretty much the way it works. Um, so just to kind of elaborate a little bit. Um, so when nitrogen is present in the soil, you know, there's the ammonium form and the nitrate form that are available to plants. And the ammonium form is, you know, positively charged and Soil particles are negatively charged, so that ammonium is going to stay uh, in the soil. Uh, conversely, you know, nitrogen or nitrate is is negatively charged, and then water soluble. So, when you get water in the system, you know, the the nitrate is going to leave with that with that water, um, and and water that enters the soil profile, you know, and is above the soil water holding capacity uh, and above the crop water use, that's when you can really have you know, gravitational water loss, and when you're really at risk to leach that nitrate below the root zone where crops can't take it up. Um, and so when you're irrigating, you know, you might add more water uh, than the soil water holding capacity and the crop water use. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a risk. And that's something where irrigation, you know, management and planning is really important. Um, and then, you know, generally, when we're looking at irrigation, we're looking at irrigation on sandy soils. Uh, and sandy soils have a lower water holding capacity than, than you know, a clay or, or a silt loam or something like that. So, you know, it's even more important. So, you know, generally I believe, you know, when you have, you know, one inch of water drainage uh, in a sandy soil, you're gonna get about 12 inches of movement of that nitrate uh, versus, you know, in a clay or silt loam, you're gonna get like five to six or so. So, you know, it is really, really a lot more important in sandy soils, which is why, you know, we talk a lot more about split applications in sandy soils um, and, you know, maybe a little bit more intensive nitrogen management. Um, and then, you know, the importance of, of uh, reducing that nitrate loss for drinking water, really, you know, it's a, it's a human health concern. So, you know, there's, you know, nitrates in drinking water are more of a concern for, you know, infants and pregnant women. You know, you can get blue baby syndrome where, you know, your blood isn't, trans, uh, isn't um, transporting enough oxygen. Um, and so that's, you know, that's problematic. And so the health risk limit for Minnesota and for the EPA is uh, 10, 10 milligrams per liter. So when, you know, our nitrate levels get above that, that's when we really do get concerned. But that being said, you know, the background levels, you know, in, in nature are generally around three milligrams per liter or under. So when you get above that three, it's kind of indicating that there's maybe a human-based source of nitrate that we should be concerned about. So you know, when, when we see nitrate levels in drinking water getting above that, that's when we really want to start looking at um, some kind of mitigation um, related to agricultural water quality. 
One thing too that I was going to mention earlier when we were talking about fertigation, you know, the pros and cons against fertigation. One potential challenge with fertigation is, and this is not going to be the, the problem this year because it's so dry, but in some years when you need to apply nitrogen and there is a lot of extra water already, uh, applying nitrogen through fertigation would mean adding water. Uh, along with that fertilizer. And if you already have excess water to begin with, you can actually push nutrients, nitrate down, down the profile and, and create issues with contamination and loss of nitrogen. So that's, that's one thing to kind of keep in mind. Again, not, a, not a much of a concern this year. The other one that I think is important to, to realize with nitrate leaching is that we normally tend to talk about water and nitrate moving down the profile. We hardly ever talk about nitrogen moving up the profile, but that is also something that happens as the plants take up water, as the soil um, dries up in the surface, that creates a suction force. The soil, if you can think of it, is basically a huge amount of capillaries that are just connected. Uh, the water is connected through those small pores. And so as you create a suction force, that water will move up. And, and with that movement, the nitrate can also move up as well. So just, just keep that in mind. Um, that is not only moving down, it can also move up. Yeah, something else, Fabian, that you reminded me of was, you know, also the conversion of ammonium to nitrate. Uh, which, you know, when, when that happens, that's when there's more of a chance for loss, uh, like I mentioned, and that, you know, that is a microbial process and, and microbes need moisture and they need heat. So when you're in a system where, you know, it's warm like it is, and you've got moisture in there, then that conversion is going to be happening a lot more quickly than, than maybe you would like. What are some of the tools available to farmers for estimating irrigation requirements? Yeah, I think Taylor and Fabian both uh, touched on this uh, about the soil water. So more is bad for, you know, you leach most of your nutrients and nitrogen uh, below the root zone. And then if you don't have enough, you cannot uptake those important nutrients uh, through crop. So to know how much water is available based on your soil water holding capacity, how much is available in your profile that your crops can use. I think irrigation uh, tools uh, or the soil moisture sensing tools would be uh, really important. So there are a variety of tools that are available to growers ranging from weather-based uh, that uses weather data to estimate the soil water depletion uh, to one that measures directly soil moisture, for example, the soil moisture sensors. So one commonly used weather-based tool is the checkbook method. So this method, uh, it maintains a running balance of, of your current moisture that is available to the plants by keeping track of how much is your crop is using in terms of evapotranspiration and then additions from from irrigation and precipitation. So basically uh, in this Excel spreadsheet model, uh, you need to input your uh, daily maximum temperature, your rainfall, and if any irrigation that, that has happened. So it will estimate your soil water depletion in the root zone, and then it recommends you the irrigation that is required. Uh, however, what we have seen that because it requires the daily manual input of the data into the spreadsheet, uh, growers usually, they are very busy in the growing season. So mostly uh, they miss you know, a day or two. So 
in those cases, I think a web-based and online tool would be a better idea. So we have this irrigation management assistant tool also available, which is basically a checkbook method, but in a web version. And then user don't need to input uh, daily data, you know, every day. So it's it, it grab all the information for, of soils, of rain, of evapotranspiration from different sources, and then recommend you irrigation. But right now, this tool is available only to some counties in the state, in Benton County area, in an Ottertail County area. But we are working on expanding it to state statewide and working on it uh, so that everybody can use it and then uh, quickly talking uh, touching on the soil moisture sensing uh, uh, like direct measurement of, of soil water so there are moisture sensors that are available and variety of it right now in the in the market but whatever sensor you use i think the one thing that you need to make sure is that it is calibrated to your soil and then it is installed in a in a correct way at a representative location in the field so it's really important that where you are putting in the field it should be representative of of the soil type that exists in the field and in a correct way that that moisture sensor has a good contact with the soil so that it's reading what you need to see any last words from the group? I would just mention quickly, Paul, that uh, with uh, the dry conditions, there may be chance for more uh, irrigation this year. And one of the things that happens with irrigation is that we pumped water that has some nitrate in it. Um, the recommendations for the rate that we apply to the crops are based on um, conditions where irrigation water has less than 10 parts per million nitrate, nitrogen. So if that's the case, um, there is no much need for an adjustment. But if you have uh, concentrations that are higher than that, and you are this year because of the dry conditions applying a lot more nitrogen, then you need to keep that in mind and adjust your, your nitrogen applications with the fact that you are you know, applying additional nitrogen through the irrigation water. So that could um, mean some savings in terms of total nitrogen application. But again, hopefully it will start raining and we will not need to apply as much water. That's that's the hope. Yep. And last words about uh, the irrigation management. I quickly covered some tools, uh, but if somebody's interested, we have uh, lots of materials on our irrigation page on our University of Minnesota Extension website. So you can refer that. And those have many calculation examples as well. If you are using some soil moisture sensors to how to calculate the irrigation. So that would be really handy, I think. All right, that about does it for the podcast this week. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.